Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. We are fucking finally back. It is fight week. UFC 249 goes down this weekend, uh, and we got Henry Suhudo taking on Dominic Cruz in the co main event for the Bantamweight title, and then we got an interim lightweight title fight in the main event with Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson, which should be absolutely bananas. And the card is stacked throughout. We got Fabrizio Verdun making his return against Alexei Olenek, Francis Ngannou against Jerzinho Rosenstrike, Greg Hardy against Jorgen DeCastro, Jack Ray Souza against Uriah Hall, Michelle Watterson against Carla Esparza, Calvin Cater versus Jeremy Stevens, Bryce Mitchell versus Charles Rosa, Anthony Pettis versus Donald Story. There's so many fucking fights on this card. I can't wait. And the fact that we're going to be getting about three cards in about seven to eight days... I'm even more stoked about that. So I'm happy to be back with tape studying. Um, it's It's been great. I'm so excited to finally uh, break down fights for you guys. The YouTube channel has been a little bit bare since then. But now since that we got cards back, I'm going to try to you know get these uh, matchups and breakdowns and these podcasts out to you guys even quicker. Um, one thing to note, you guys, it's going to be pretty obvious based on what you guys are about to see. I pre-recorded these breakdowns. So as I finish, this is a different approach that I'm taking. As I finished taping these fights, each individually, I would break down the fight right away. You know, it's it's as fresh as can be on my mind whenever I break down these fights as soon as I'm done them. So I thought I would try that out for this podcast. And honestly... I kind of like it. I, I think it's kind of great. Like, it's a little bit of work in terms of like stitching everything together afterwards, but it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I felt like I was able to get my thoughts out a little bit clearer, uh, you know, just being so, just recording it so soon after actually seeing the tape and doing the research myself. So that's something that you guys will notice here as well. And one note regarding, you know, uh, recording these individual breakdowns earlier. I will be posting these or have also been posting these on my Patreon page as soon as I finish recording them. So if you want to get these breakdowns a little bit sooner than fight week, um, you know, just to take advantage of any earlier lines or anything like that, uh, check out the Patreon. It's only five bucks a month. You get uh, all the individual breakdowns before the actual podcast comes out. Uh, you'll also be getting a final thoughts video uh, the day before the event. So in case there's any crazy line swings or or any injuries or any developments throughout fight week, I'll be addressing those on that uh that final thoughts video uh which comes out every day before the day before uh the ufc event itself and then lastly i'll be dropping a best bets article on my patreon page which goes through every single fight and pinpoints the the best bet for that specific fight whether i'm betting it or not i'm just trying to give you guys a quick brief uh outline on why i think that's the best bet for the card uh for that fight specifically and then i give you the best bet for that fight um so a bunch of things that you guys can expect on the Patreon. I think it's enough, more than enough uh, content for, to warrant $5 a month. Uh, and then obviously you get every single official play on that Patreon page. Even when I'm charging the public, those only go for 20 to 25 bucks. Uh, you get it for $5 a month just for being a Patreon subscriber. So make sure you guys check that shit out. All right, enough rambling. Let's get into the fucking episode. Um yeah, I guess there's no point in really recapping UFC Brasilia since that was like over, you know, all closing in on two months ago, which is crazy. Um, but I already did an episode on that. We're coming off of three straight winning events, um, you know, five straight lock of the night plays hitting 
uh, we're on a roll. Let's keep it going. Hopefully, uh, this coronavirus doesn't really slow us down. We can come in here and and, and get a sweep. Uh, that would be nice. No official bets yet, but that will come uh, later on in the week. So make sure you guys keep your eyes peeled for that. All right, let's get into the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoy it. Ryan Spann versus Sam Alvey kicks off the card for UFC 249. Um, surprised that this is actually the first fight of the night considering that I believe they have a slightly higher value, name value at least, compared to the rest of the fights on the card. But let's get right into this. Um, minus 380 currently for Ryan Spann, plus 315 for Sam Alvey. Um, I think that line's a little bit too wide. Let's start off with Sam Alvey. He's coming off of three straight losses. Two of them were finishes. Um to Lil Nog and Jimmy Crute. Um, but in my opinion, those were a little bit of an early stoppage. Like he did get dropped. That's There's no doubt about it. And he was a little bit rocked, but he was never really truly out. So I still got to give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of having durability. I believe that he'll be able to eat some shots here from Ryan Spann. Um, he, you know, I think the most likely outcome is that Ryan Spann goes out there and, get, and gets a finish. Um, but if this gets past the first round, it could be a little bit interesting. I think that Sam Alvey, you know, considering the fact that, you know, licking back all the way to the Gian Vellante fight, he's always had a, an issue with in terms of output and and putting a pace on opponents. Um, that's not his game. He's always looking for that one-two. Uh, his two is obviously very powerful, but he's always looking to land that that right, that that front right hook um, whenever his opponents try to crash forward. Um, and it's been successful for him in the past. The one thing that I do like, even though he has, you know, over 47 fights, this will be his 47th fight, um, he did. It seemed in that Gian Vellante fight that he was regressing, and that the the years of fighting were starting to catch up to him. However, you know, in the Nogueira fight, the Crude fight, and even in the Abreu fight, even though he lost all those fights, it seemed like he showed a little bit of a, a maturation. It showed um, a little bit of. Um, a little bit of progress you know he he wasn't just continuously backing up backing up and then throwing the one two every now and then you know he threw in a couple leg kicks here and there he initiated the clinch position a lot with clits and abreu and and landed decent landed decent decent shots from there um we've seen him go to a decision quite often so i think his cardio is going to be okay here we've seen ryan span you know the last time we saw him go three rounds was against luis enrique and it he you know he pulled off some decent um maneuvers in the second and third rounds but it's like he was actually a little bit gassed at least in my opinion um you know luckily for him he wasn't as gassed as Luis Enrique there um one thing I do want to point out we'll, we'll flip over to Ryan Spann now is um in in that second round against Luis Enrique there was this moment where he clinched up a dart stroke went for an anaconda roll um you know it seemed like Enrique was going to stifle the anaconda roll um and then eventually Spann was actually able to get that to get that roll uh and then use the cage to kind of flip over and land in mount full mount of uh, Luis Enrique and I thought it was a great maneuver I was I was very impressed uh by Ryan Spann there you know he's he's very well coached over at uh 47 MMA and Safe Sayud so I think he has a ton of potential he's 17 and 5 he's pretty much a veteran of the MMA game at this point um but minus 380 in my opinion that's a little bit crazy um i you know i am considering throwing him in a hail mary parlay but i don't know if i would even like like you could take the easy way out here and you could probably parlay ryan span and francis Ngannou and probably call it a day but i i don't know man i don't know if i'm willing to to actually pay that juice on ryan span here even if it's in a parlay um 
you know, he has the range. His one-two looks crisp as hell. Very, very nice with his uh, with his range, his movement. Um, it seems after the first round that he has a little bit of trouble with his movement. And I think that's where Sam Alvey could potentially catch him with some sort of shot. Um, if we continue to see the the progression of Sam Alvey's game in terms of being a little bit more active and having a little bit more output, um, it could be trouble for Ryan Spann, you know. Minus 3.8, a little bit crazy. I was thinking a little bit closer to minus 250 for Ryan Spanner. Minus 200, minus 200 may be a little bit too much of a gift, but the minus 250 range seemed a little bit more suitable for Ryan Spann. Um, I believe they are in different trajectories in terms of their career. I think Spann is, you know, ascending the ladder, whereas uh, Sam Alvey is kind of falling down on the ladder. Um I like Spanier, um, not confident enough to make him like a main bet, maybe a parlay piece, uh, like a Hail Mary parlay piece, I should say, uh, but nothing, no, no, nothing crazy. Like, in my opinion, this fight is a pass, dog or pass, actually, like, or even uh, look for the fight doesn't go to decision. Let's see what those props currently are. Um, Ryan Span. So under two and a half rounds is minus 155. Fight doesn't go to decision is minus one ninety five. So, if anything, I think the the, 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 the line wise, the the best bet here might be the under two and a half rounds. We could see Sam Alvey go out there and knock out Ryan Spann, and we've seen him get clipped in some of his fights. No, Gary even you know rocked him a couple, not rocked him, but like landed some really good shots on him too. Uh, before that, before Spann was actually able to put him out. Um, yeah, I, I like the under two and a half. I, I'm actually surprised that it's minus one fifty five. I thought it'd be closer to minus two hundred. So maybe that's the bet for this fight. Uh, but in terms of choosing a side, I would just throw Ryan Spann in like a hail mary parlay. Nothing crazy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm my official pick. Ryan Spann by by second round, probably power guillotine choke. One of the his his chokes are very very beautiful. It's it's very very impressive. Um, I believe he locked up uh, Devin Clark in his last fight in one of those as well too. So uh, look for Ryan Spann to use his, uh, you know, one thing actually I do want to pull um, talk about quickly in that Devin Clark fight, it seemed like Ryan Spann lacked a lot of uh, uh, a sense of urgency. It seemed like he was just more so uh, happy to just go out there and throw one, two every now and then, you know, let Devin Clark get off the cage. There was a point in time where he was just backing up and, and letting Devin Clark come back to the center of the cage. Um, I think he was scared of the, the the blitz attack of of Devin Clark, but once he really opened up, he was able to put the pressure on Devin Clark and really hurt him. Uh, Sam Alvey, I think a lot of people are just reading a little bit too much in the Jimmy Crude fight and the uh, the Noguera fight. I, I think his durability is still there, so if he's able to keep his legs under him for that first round and a half, it could get a little bit dicey for Ryan Spann. So um, you know, look for Ryan Spann to kind of slow down after that round and a half and possibly get clipped by something uh, by uh, with uh, Sam Alvey. So under two and a half is probably the best bet in this in this fight uh but i'm gonna go with ryan spam by second round submission um and yeah again just too big of a favorite bryce mitchell versus charles rosa this is a fun fight and i'm glad it kind of took me to saturday evening to actually get around to taping this fight because as i was taping the fight and over the last day or two at least the 48 hours there's been a little bit of a change in the betting line so right now it's currently sitting at minus 150 for bryce mitchell uh, plus 235, or sorry, uh, my, my apologies, plus 130 for Charles Rosa. And that's closer to where I initially thought it should. Well, I, I, I thought Bryce Mitchell was more than deserving of the minus 185, minus 190 that he was around. Uh, but the plus minus 150 now is kind of seeming more like it, especially after completing tape. So let's get into Bryce Mitchell a little bit. 
This kid's still young in the game, and I feel like he has a ton of potential. He's only 25. Um, I believe his record, he only has that exhibition loss to Brad Katona on the Ultimate Fighter, but he's 3-0 in the UFC, 12-0 overall. Um, he has a ton of talent, and it seems like he's ever-improving. Uh, the one advantage in this fight I think he truly has, especially based on the circumstances that we're in with the COVID-19 pandemic, is the fact that he trains out of Arkansas with pretty much a bare-bones team. There isn't that big of a team around him. He's pretty much the main guy out of there. Whereas Charles Rosa, you know, Boston guy that trains out of ATT, Florida. So you got to wonder what kind of work he was able to get in, especially with this pandemic going on, uh, you know, He's mainly down there, and everybody kind of knows that whenever there is a super team uh, assembled, kind of like an American top team, people are mainly there, not just for the coaches, but mainly for the training partners. So I'm interested to see if Charles Russell would let us know, uh, you know, what kind of training partners he was able to work with for this training camp. Bryce Mitchell isn't the most, you know, ordinary fighter. He's a little bit awkward. Uh, he's a little bit wild with his attacks. Um you know, very strong ground game as we saw in his last fight against Matt Sales. He made it evident right off the bat that's what he wanted to do. He got the fight to the ground with relative ease. You know, Matt Sales not the best when it comes to the grappling realm, so you can't really knock him too hard on that. And then he pulls off that beautiful twister to to cap off to cap it off. His other fights, however, you know, the, the Tyler Diamond fight, that was relatively close. The Bobby Moffitt fight was kind of close as well, too. That was uh, very two closely contested fights. And for some reason, people think that, uh, I think it's the trajectory that people think that Bryce Mitchell is on compared to Charles Rosa. You know, Charles Rosa, 33, he's only fought three times since 2016, uh, you know, going up against tough competition. He did pull out that uh, decision victory over Kyle Bokniak, uh, was on his way almost, actually, to winning that Shane Burgos fight. He was doing a lot of good work, especially with that leg kick against Shane Burgos. Burgos was really, really hurting from that. So he, you know, set up a pretty good game plan by attacking that leg, uh, you know, right off the get-go. But unfortunately, you know, kind of a short stoppage in my opinion in that fight as well. So uh, he kind of got the shit end of the stick there. But I thought he showed off a really good game plan against a guy that's as dynamic of a striker as Shane Burgos, who also hits with, you know, a lot of power. And then in the Manny Bermudez fight, you know, gets taken down with relative ease, but shows off his offensive guard. He armbars uh, a jiu-jitsu master in uh, Manny Bermudez, who's pretty much only ever won fights via submission. Um, you know, he showed off a great, uh, great offensive guard off his back. So I think he, you know, once this fight hits the ground, I think it's going to be a little bit of a wash. I'm not sure if Bryce Mitchell is going to be able to bully uh, Charles Rosa on the ground. Rosa is very, very offensive, like I said, as he was in that Manny Bermudez fight. Uh, but if this fight is to take place on the feet, that's where Bryce's game is still kind of like crafting itself. It's still trying to find a way how it's going to make him successful outside of him bullying guys with his strength and with his clinch work. Charles Rosa... You know, he sometimes he shows off this Wonder Boy-esque type of fighting style. He uses like a, a wide stance, a wide karate stance, likes to kick a lot. Um, that's how he won his fights against Kyle Bakniak and Shane Burgos. Was, well, almost won the Shane Burgos fight by leg kicking his way to victory. If he's able to do that here with Bryce Mitchell, that should really take away some of the power from Bryce Mitchell in terms of bullying Charles Rosa and trying to get this fight to the ground. And even if it does get to the ground, you know, I think Charles Rosa has a really good chance there too. But on the feet is where it's most interesting. Will Charles be able to keep it on the feet? And even if he doesn't, is he going to be able to hold, uh, like, you know, reverse positions? Is he only going to be on the bottom? And Bryce does a really good job of keeping that top pressure and top control. Um, I think Bryce 
possibly has the strength for it. I'm not 100% certain. Uh, but Charles Schultz has some really good technique too. So that's something that he's got to worry about. Um, I was a little bit skeptical when the line was a little bit wider. But now that's a little bit closer, it seems about right. The one thing that is tough to cap is the potential uh, improvements and advancements in their game that fighters have made. And that's kind of the question mark here with uh, Bryce Mitchell. We don't know how much better this kid is going to get. And he keeps looking every time he, he keeps looking better every time he comes out. But Charles Rosa presents some very, very interesting problems. Um, you know, if this fight stays on the feet, Charles is probably going to get the better of Bryce Mitchell here, not just with volume, but, you know, pounding that lead leg for sure. That's something he's going to be looking at as has he as has he has looked uh, at for his last couple fights as well, too. So that's something to keep in mind. This fight's going to be a pass for me, all in all. I was looking to bet Bryce Mitchell as possibly a lock, and then I played. This was pre-tape. That was something that I wanted to do, but it's hard for me to do that. You know, that's twice now going into tape for this card where I'm like, this guy is probably going to be my lock of the night, then come out on the other and be like, I just can't trust him. So, you know, not trying to knock Bryce. I think he he has a ton of potential. He could probably come out here and absolutely, absolutely smash Charles Rosa. But pre-tape, fight you know like with the tape that's available and what we've seen from all, all both of these guys it's hard to say that he's actually going to go out there and ragdoll charles rosa because yeah it, there, there's a lot of issues that charles rosa presents on the feet and then on the ground too he's very offensive how is bryce going to be able to deal with that and that might be this might this will actually be the 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 first time where he fights as much uh technical resistance off of his back compared to like what he fought against with like bobby moffitt and um and Matt Sales. Um yeah. In terms of a pick, fuck, this one's tough. I think I'm actually gonna go with the upset here. I think that Charles Rosa definitely is a live dog. Uh I'm not sure if I'll bet it myself because there's another underdog later on in this card that I'm really intrigued by. Um but yeah, Charles Rosa I think is a is a decent shot here uh to to pull the upset off. So I'm gonna say Charles Rosa by decision. We see him work that leg. Uh, and and you know pretty much keep this fight on the feet uh, and and hold his own if it ever gets to the grappling instances. But I'm taking Charles Rosa to win by decision uh, and spring off the upset. Nico Price versus Vicente Luque. This is the rematch of a fight that actually went down in 2017 when uh, Vicente Luque actually came out victorious in the second round with a Dars choke that started a five fight winning streak or sorry six fight winning streak. Uh, for Vicente Luque before he ran into Stephen Wonderboy Thompson this past November back at UFC 244, where he went on to lose a uh, unanimous decision there. Uh, whereas Nico Price is coming off a victory over James Vick, uh, a loss to Jeff Neal before that, and then a win over Tim Means before that. Um, all all of those fights being very entertaining, uh, even the Abdul Razak Al Hazan fight, you know, only lasted 43 seconds, but we, you know, it pretty much was what we expected it to be. So let's start off with Vicente Luque. Um, very fun striker, uh, has great um, hands, great leg kicks as well too. His jiu-jitsu is very, well, uh, is very good too, as we obviously know from his first encounter with Nico Price. Um, I think his, his combinations and his abilities to put his strikes together is a lot better than Nico Price. His his power is decent too. We saw that in the Derek Kranz fight where he was able to stumble him and then stop him that way. Um, 
My concern with Luke, though, is he's had a ton of potential and he's always been a fighter where people thought that this guy's just waiting to bubble over and finally uh, rise to the occasion. And they thought that the Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight would have been that for him. However, you know, Wonderboy comes out there and puts on an absolute clinic on him, hurting him numerous times, dropping him a couple times as well, too. And that's kind of brought to my attention the, the possibility of the durability of Vicente Luque dwindling. You know, um, sitting at the minus, where is he at? Minus 275 uh, as of this recording. I think that's a little bit too high. If you were just going strictly skill for skill, I would obviously put Vicente Luque maybe even higher than that. But then you got to take into the X, uh, take into consideration the X factors of the, the, the dwindling uh, dur- durability of Vicente Luque because he's been in some absolute wars over the last couple of fights. You know, with the exception of the Derek Kranz fight. And, and even in that fight, he got a little bit hurt before he finally took over and was able to get the finish there. But then the Brian Barberina fight took massive amounts of damage, hurt a couple of times. Mike Perry hurt him a couple of times, obviously, too. And then Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, not known to be that guy to really knock people out ever, like besides his first low stint in the UFC where he had that that first uh his first fight, he knocked out Dan Stigeon. Um, but since then he hasn't really gone on a knockout streak or known as a guy that has tons of power. He's more so of a kind of a an output based fighter um but with Vicente Luque he was able to hurt him numerous times and that kind of just gives me a a little bit of a red red flag for Vicente Luque um I think that Nico Price is live you know uh, Nico Price he's kind of that guy that only needs the one punch or the one strike whether it's off his back or even just a punch straight forward um you know, we saw him uh, heel, cu- heel kick uh, James Vick into another dimension. So that was a great knockout win for him. The Randy Brown one was insane as well, too, um, as well as the uh, Tim Means one, where it was a little bit of a comeback, even though he was being backed up. He was still able to land a great shot to drop Tim Means and then follow up and finish that fight, too. Um, I expect Luke to kind of be the one pressuring this fight and landing his combinations at will and and kind of breaking Nico Price at that point. However, Nico Price could we've seen him in the in the past from his back foot he can generate enough power to hurt uh, his opponents and we've seen Vicente Luque hurt numerous times. I believe that Price is the heaviest striker that Luque has fought. Uh, let's see since you know Mike Perry's a heavy hitter, but he hasn't really knocked out anybody recently. Um, oof. I think Leon Edwards probably not not even that. I think Perry hits a little bit harder than Leon Edwards. Yeah, you know, the last time he fought a heavy puncher was Nico Price. And Nico Price didn't have like the most success in that fight either. Um the first time around. It it was uh, you know, it was a pretty evident fight for Vicente Luque. But this time around I'm a little bit skeptical, especially at such a high line. Uh, um, it's probably a pass. It's a dog or pass situation here. If you really want to get frisky with it, you might as well just bet the under one and a half. However, um, you know, there is a possibility this chance could this fight could spill over into the third round. And that could definitely be where uh, the finish the finish comes. But I don't expect this fight to go to a full uh, three round decision. You know, minus 375 is a little bit too steep, in my opinion, for that fight doesn't go to decision. But it's kind of, you know, that's probably where it should be at. Uh, Nico Price's violence, no matter who he steps in there against, whether it's him knocking somebody out or him getting knocked out or submitted or anything like that. I expect this fight to be chaotic and I don't expect to be comfortable at the minus 275 range if I have my money on Vicente Luque. Um, You know, Nico Price might be the shot here. And, you know, technically speaking, he's not the better fighter, but he has that wild man capability and that one punch knockout power that makes any fight 
a toss up at that point, you know. So with the amount of times that I've seen Vicente Luque actually eat strikes in his last couple of fights, it's a little concerning for me that Nico Price might actually land on him and put him out too. So I'm not comfortable with Vicente Luque. I'm going to be honest. I think very highly of his skills, but the fact that he still get gets hit and you know say what you want about the Wonderboy Thompson fight and Wonderboy Thompson style, but as Luque starts to get hit, he really starts to his 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 confidence level really starts to go down as well too and that's where he starts to back up he's not really throwing his leg kicks or anything like that which allows him to set up his hands if Nico Price is able to land a couple big shots in there and start to give Vicente Luque to start moving backwards he could have some success there too but it needs to be a chaotic fight for Nico Price to f- you know find success and more often than not we've seen Vicente Luque in some crazy and wild fights as of late so I'm not counting on Nico Price here I'm still going to pick Vicente Luque to win but betting wise like I would rather bet Nico Price here at the plus 240 plus plus 235 range that he's currently at uh but yeah there's far too much juice on Luque and you know until we see a little bit of uh progression in his striking defense it's going to be hard to to back him against heavy punches like Nico Price. Now, if he was going out out there and fighting, you know, somebody else that didn't have as much power as him, I'm trying to think of somebody off the top of my head in the one seventy pound, like say he fought Anthony Pettis or say he fought a uh, Cowboy Cerrone or something like that, he could definitely go out there and beat those guys, and I wouldn't have as much of a worry of him getting knocked out compared to a guy like Nico Price who could generate power from pretty much any and everywhere. So. That fact alone is keeping me away from betting this fight. The under one and a half is a little bit, you know, appealing. Um, however, I could see this fight spill out into the third round as well in case, you know, the durability of both of these guys holds up a little bit. But I do expect somebody to get the finish, whether it's Vicente Luque by submission or Nico Price by, you know, some crazy knockout that he might pull out of his ass just, just as he did in the last two out of three fights that he's had so um the official pick is luke it's a pass betting wise the under one and a half would probably be my best bet here uh but i like nico price's price tag and you know i'm not gonna hate on anybody that goes out there and tries to tries to take the gamble on nico price here so uh vicente luke by let's say second round submission Jacare Souza versus Uriah Hall. This is a very intriguing matchup, especially with the line being as close as it is. Minus 120 for Jacare, plus 100 for Uriah Hall. And the thing to note here is the fact that Jacare Souza is coming into this fight as a 40-year-old. It's the first time he's stepping into the cage at 40. Um, and I think it's going to be intriguing to see whether people uh, are taking that into much more of a um taking that into consideration much more than they actually should. I believe if this fight was maybe three or four years ago, uh, you'd see Jacare as a much higher favorite. He'd probably be closer to minus 250, minus 300. And obviously, there's going to be wear and tear over a fighter's career. But still, you got to look stylistically how he matches up with every single opponent that he f- goes up against. So Jacare is obviously coming off that loss to um, Jan Blachowicz. Um, that was a five-round split decision loss. Very close, kind of uneventful fight. You know, they're chipping away at both of each other's legs. Um, that seemed to be like the tail of the tape there and then a little bit of clinch control. Um, but there wasn't anything that you can seriously take out of the fight to be like, you know, Jack Ray's completely off the rails or he's completely gone. You know, the Jack Hermanson fight, another close fight. Uh, Jack Hermanson just squeezes it out, gets the victory there. Um, it seemed like his cardio definitely played a factor in that fight. Um, and then before that, he had the Chris Weidman victory. Um, you know, one thing that's consistent with Jack Ray is the fact that 
uh, he always likes to pressure forward. He likes to throw heavy strikes. He does it in spurts, but he does it in like prolonged spurts as well too, where he continues to walk his opponent down uh, and just, you know, it's almost like Derek Lewis whenever he has that like third round blitz where he just goes nuts for 45 seconds and then eventually, eventually finds the finish. Jack Ray doesn't normally find the finish that late. You know, he did finish uh, Chris Weidman in the third round, but it doesn't always play out for him. It usually depends on his opposition. And Jack Romanson and Jan Blahovic, in my opinion, are much more durable, are much more uh, mentally stronger, um, and, and they just have better overall skills than Uriah Hall. With Uriah Hall, it's always his mental game that seems to screw him over. And a guy that's 15-9 and nine that had as much hype as he had coming out of the Ultimate Fighter, you would expect him to be at least in a better place in his career. And this is great for him in terms of you know, establishing himself even more with a big uh, big win over Jack Ray Souza. Um, you know, he is coming off of uh, two straight victories over Bevin Lewis in a fight that he was kind of getting picked apart in. He was really getting pressured. Bevin was really in his face. It seemed like Bevin got a little bit carried away and then just left himself open and, you know, ate it and, and paid for it. Uh, and then in the Antonio Carlos Jr. fight, you know, kind of a close fight. It was a split decision. Really came down to that first round, in my opinion, because, you know, there was a lot of control by ACJ in that first round. But then uh, Uriah Hall was really letting him up with that jab. You see when Uriah Hall is really on, he's on. Like, that pistol-like uh, jab that he has is very, very helpful for him. And it could be helpful here in this Jacare Souza fight. The only issue is we only get it in spurts. Like, we get the whole Jacare power blitz in spurts. We get that in prolonged periods, whereas Uriah Hawes is more like a minute and a half here and there. And even that, that's a bit of a stretch. Um, mentally, he can still break. And I feel like a fighter like Jacare Souza, who's going to be able to put that pressure on him, can break him. Like, just see the, the first round of Bevan Lewis versus uh, Uriah Hall, where Bevan was not letting him breathe, not letting him off the chain, nothing like that. And Uriah was kind of breaking. You know, he didn't completely break, but he was on the brink of breaking. You, Jacare Souza is going to be able to do the exact same thing. The way he whiffs his shots to the body and doesn't discriminate with any turn and with any sense in terms of his tar target, that's going to be very helpful for him here. I could see him like backing down Uriah Hall for the majority of this fight. Uh, I could see one of them getting the finish. You know, Uriah Hall, as much, you know, I, I might seem like I'm talking negatively about him, but he does carry a lot of power in his hands too. So if, you know, he's definitely going to be the quicker striker. So if he's able to get his jab going and then eventually follow it up with the right hand, he could put Jacare on his butt. However, Jacare is quite durable. Like we haven't really seen Jacare, I'm trying to remember the last time we've actually seen him like legit finished. Um, let me just pull that up. Why can't I think about this off the top of my head? Oh yeah, Robert Whitaker over three years ago. So it's it's been a while since we've seen him finish. I don't think Uriah Hall is going to be the one to finish him. However, I'm not completely sold on playing Jacare either. There is the possibility that Uriah Hall could go out there and jab his face off. Um, there is a possibility that we see a mentally strong Uriah Hall as well too, especially with the fact that he's over at Fortis MMA. And, you know, there is the, the, the argument of abbreviated training camps. I'm not sure exactly where Uriah Hall has been holding his training camps now that he's you know in this quarantine uh, that we are. But the positive thing is this fight was actually announced way back in December. So they've had at least a solid three months. Okay, so he is down at Fortis MMA. Just wanted to confirm that. Yeah, 17 hours ago, he just posted that he was at Fortis MMA. So that's good. It's good that he's still getting that training with those guys. Um, 
but either way, I was going to downplay that regardless because this fight was announced in December. So that gave them December, January, February, March, a little bit of March, a week and a half in March to actually train properly with, you know, without this whole COVID-19 shit going on. Same thing with Jacare as well. He's already in Florida, so he's not going to have to travel for this. I believe he's based out of Orlando, Florida now. Uh, the team that used to train Mike Perry um, and Alex Nicholson. Uh, fuck, I can't remember their name. But either way, uh, great guys over there. They've done some good things with Jacare, even though he's you know on the on the down downside of his career. Uh, the line is rightfully lined, in my opinion, kind of. like I, I do feel like Jacare, you could get away with Jacare as a slightly bigger favorite. So even at the minus 120 line that he's currently at, I think he has a little bit of value there. I'm not sure if I'm going to bet it myself because I'm not sure if I can just... I, I can't... Uh, I, I can't, uh, you know... You, you can't bet on Uriah Hall's mental. You don't know if it's, it's going to be there all 15 minutes or however long this fight will potentially last. And then you can't really bank on Jacare Souza uh, and the decline that he's been on. But the one thing that you can bank on is the fact that Jacare is going to have a stronger will and stronger mentality than Uriah Hall here. And he will be able to overwhelm him with pressure and pace and, and staying in his face. His durability, as long as that stays up and he's able to keep that uh, to, to keep that in check, he should be able to take this fight. But the, the line that's most intriguing to me in this fight is actually the under 2.5. Uh, minus 105 is currently what it's sitting at. I think there's some value there. We could definitely see either you know Uriah Hall catching Jacare or Jacare just continuously overwhelming and pressuring Uriah Hall. Um, I'm not 100% sure we'll see Jacare pull off a submission here. Uh, strictly due to the fact that we haven't seen him submit anybody since Tim Boach over four years ago. And even before that, it was Chris Camozzi twice. Um, you know, he hasn't really been a huge submission threat in his UFC career, at least as of late. So I think we could actually even see him finish it off with punches where he, you know, overwhelms Uriah Hall, hurts him, drops him, follows up, whether it's submission or TKO. I think it will be more so a TKO. Um, I was impressed with the fact that Uriah Hall was able to, you know, weather uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. on his back for the majority of that third round in their fight. So he does definitely have some good submission defense, especially with a guy as credentialed as uh, Shoeface. Um, but yeah, with Jacare, I think it's going to be more so the power that he's going to have to look out for, you know, constantly mixing it up to the body. The way he rips his body shots is just next level as, a, next level as well, too. So that's something to look out for. Yeah, in terms of betting aside here, it's going to be a pass for me. The under two and a half is probably the best bet in this fight if you guys want action on this fight. Uh, but in terms of forcing myself to make a pick, I'm going to go with Jacare Souza here. I could see him hurting Uriah Hall probably in the second round um, after probably Uriah Hall has a little bit of success in that first round. But then he's going to start to wilt uh, and Jacare is going to continue to put the pressure on him and then slowly put him away. So I'm going to go with Jacare Souza here. I'm going to say second round TKO. Uh, but if you're feeling frisky, go out there and bet the under two and a half because I think there's a ton of value at that minus 105 line. Yeah, Jacare Souza. Carlo Esparza versus Michelle Watterson. It's pretty obvious when you see Michelle Watterson's nickname, the Karate Hottie. Obviously, what her game plan is probably going to revolve around is her karate. She has very good um, flashy striking, especially her kicks. I'd say the most impressive thing about her is probably her front leg kick. Um, the fact that she's able to get her foot up so quickly is just insane one thing that uh dominic cruz actually commented on i believe it was during the carolina kovalkovic fight he's like it reminds him of like uh zohan like why well, you see his feet just come up from the bottom of the camera and um you know land perfectly she does it very well uh, she uses it very effectively another technique she uses very effectively is her front teep to the to the lead leg of her opponent sometimes she reaches for the back leg as well too but the front leg really stifles the forward movement of movement of most of her opponents 
with that said, she seems to accept her back leg a little bit more than she should, um, which is why she's usually, you know, the one moving backwards. In the Felice Herrig fight, she was the one uh, pretty much moving backwards. The whole fight, Felice Herrig was able to implement her strength on her, put her up against the cage, but Michelle Watterson seemed to have more of a gas tank and was able to, you know, uh, really control that fight uh, uh, as well, too. In the what, what fight was it? The the Tisha Torres fight. We saw the strength of Tisha Torres very play play very well into that fight as well too. Um, you know, first round clear for Tisha Torres, second round for Michelle Watterson, and then third round Tisha Torres Torres was able to get the back with about a minute or less left and really rain down punches and secure that fight for herself. So one thing with Michelle Watterson is you really notice that when she does initiate the grappling, her main go-to takedown is the head and arm throw, which unfortunately work, seems to work on a lot of her opponents. Karolina Kavakovic got caught in it a couple of times, Felice Herrig as well too. So we've seen that approach from her in her most recent fights. Um, obviously, the Joanna jo- Janjacek fight is a little bit of an, uh, an anomaly here. You know, you can't really look at that fight too closely uh, when you're sizing her up against an opponent like Carla Esposa because, you know, Carla is way more takedown-centric than Joanna is, even though Joanna landed three takedowns in that fight. But the way she's able to mix in her striking makes it a little bit different of a game than what Carla Esposa would be able, be able to implement. So... I like, uh, you know, Watterson's striking is obviously going to be her advantage here, and it would pretty much favor her a lot if she were the one, uh, you know, initiating this fight in that in that uh, scenario in the striking uh, zone. But if it hits the ground, uh, things could get a little bit dicey. Moving to Carla Esparza, in her ten UFC fights, in eight of them, uh. Eight out of those 10 UFC fights, she's landed two or more takedowns. She's landed a total of 33 takedowns in 10 fights. And the two other fights outside of those eight fights that I was talking about, she fought Tatiana Suarez where she got taken down nine times and she landed zero takedowns. And I think pretty much anybody would be like, all right, I'll write that off. It's Tatiana Suarez. Even when studying this fight, I didn't even bother watching the Tatiana Suarez fight due to the fact that there's no resemblance with Michelle Watterson, you know, Tatiana Suarez, very Nurmagomedov-like, likes to get her opponents down as soon as possible and try to implement her ground and power, maybe look for a submission. Uh, and then the other fight that I was talking about with Carla Esparza, she landed one takedown in her fight against Yuani and Jacek, which was her first title, t- title defense after she won that uh, season of The Ultimate Fighter. Since then, she's made some strides. You know, her, her takedown... Uh, or sorry, her striking just did not look the greatest in her first couple UFC fights, and it was obviously evident in that fight against Yuani and Jacek, where she was completely outmatched on the feet. But as you see her UFC career progress, you see her have a little bit more um, confidence in her hands, and it might be more forcingly due to the fact that her opponents are able to to keep it on the feet or stuff her takedowns. Alexa Grasso fight a little bit of an example there, where uh, once Grasso was able to. Um, you know, stuff the takedowns. You see Carla Esparza trying to let loose a little bit more on the feet with her hands. Uh, she landed a couple of good shots on Alexa Grasso, but it was clear that Grasso was the better striker in that fight. Um, but it always came down to the takedowns and the timing of Carla Esparza. That's something that she has uh, over a lot of her opponents is the fact that she's able to time her entries very well. Um, you know, she's kind of seeking the fact that her opponents are going to be throwing uppercuts at her. So she does a good job of even when she changes her levels to try to stay out of the way of any strikes that her opponent might be throwing and then go in for the double leg or the single leg or whatever it is. Um, 
I think for a fact we will see uh, Carlos Esparza get this fight to the ground. Um, Michelle Watterson is quite impressive off of her back. She has, uh, you know, she's very, very active. I just want to confirm the number of submission victories she has because she seems very, very active. So in terms of um, uh, topology, she has one, two, three, four, five... Five wins by by submission, but Carla Esparza has really good submission defense. I don't think she's ever been submitted in her career. I just want to confirm that number as well. She lost via ground and pound to uh, Tatiana Suarez, which is obviously gonna happen when you fight a girl like Tatiana Suarez. Uh, she got armbarred in her fourth ever fight against a twenty and old Megumi Fuji. Uh, she beat her by armbar back back in 2010. But since then, she's shown absolutely beautiful submission defense. Alexa Grasso had in, had her in very compromising situations, and she was able to roll out of them. The m- most intriguing submission attempt I've seen against Carlos Esparza was actually at the ending of the second round. I want to say it was where uh, uh, Grasso threw up her legs, and she seemed to have a very clean armbar. You know, Grasso did come by another armbar later on in that fight, and Esparza was able to get out. But certain armbars, you know, when they're that tight and it looked like Grasso was going to have it very tight, uh, it would make things interesting. So I'm kind of um, scared for Esparza a little bit in terms of the 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 armbar or not the armbar, but like any type of situation, any submission that w- Watterson would be able to throw up. I think you know it, it makes things a little bit dicey. Going into taping this fight, I was actually wanting to bet Carlos Esparza probably as a lock of the night play at 3.5 units, uh, especially around the minus 140-ish line that she's currently at. However, I just I, I don't think I can pull that trigger at this moment in time. That might change, you know, closer to fight date. But I think there are a couple other lines out there that are more deserving as a lock of the night play. But I do like Carlos Esparza here, you know, her ever-improving striking, which obviously I don't think is going to be too much or showcase too much here as i believe she'll be able to get michelle watterson down pretty much at will when she wants um it's going to come down to the cardio is is carla going to be able to keep uh you know watterson down is she able to going to is she going to be able to do damage from on top without getting submitted that's the question and i'm, I'm not willing to you know put down a good chunk of change on change on carla's puzzle to find out if that's actually going to happen you know she has decent um top control we've seen her you know uh, opponents in the past uh consistently get up Va- uh, verna Dan- jandy roba is a perfect example of that as well um but we've seen instances where you know Carla Esparza has is the one that gets taken down, but she has very good reversals and sweeps as well too. So that's something to look out for. So even if Michelle Watterson tries to go for her, you know, um, rookie level uh, head and arm throw, which seems to work on a lot of opponents, and I I believe I've seen it actually work on Carla Esparza as well, which is very very unfortunate. Um, you know, Michelle Watterson has got to be very careful that she doesn't give up her back, just like she did in the Rose Nami Yunus fight, and just as she was about to in, you know, most of her other fights, Phillies Herrick was close to getting her back as well, too. Um, they have to be very, very careful. Um, I'm still leaning Carla Esparza here. I'm going to say Carla does eventually grind her out, wins at least two of those rounds, but I think this fight's going to be close. I can I see why the, the odds are as close as they are. Let me just confirm what they are as of this taping. Minus 160 for Carla Esparza, plus 140 for uh, Watterson. A little bit too steep for me for Carla Esparza. Um, yeah, maybe closer to the fight, I'll warm up to a little bit more if I, if the spots that I'm looking at start to get out of hand. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm going to take Carlos Esparza by decision. Poor Michelle Watterson. I, I hope she pulls it off. I am a big fan of her, but statistically and, 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 and you know, 
factually based off of what I've seen on tape, it seems like it's going to be a Carla, Carla Esparza decision. Fabrizio Werdum versus Alexio Linick. This is going to be either very sloppy or end very quickly. Uh, I'm not sure which way I'm completely leaning yet in terms of whether this is going to go over one and a half or under one and a half, but there's definitely value on both sides in my opinion. So let's start off with Fabrizio Verdum first and foremost. This is the longest stretch he's ever gone without competing in MMA. Since he debuted, I believe it was in 2002, he hasn't missed a year in terms of competition uh, other than now, uh, which is, uh, I believe he fought Alexander Volkov back in 2018. He did not compete in 2019, and here he is coming back in 2020. So it's been over two and a half years uh, since he had actually fought. So he fought Alexander Volkov March of 2018. Here we are, May of 2020. And he's finally coming back after that suspension that he had after the Alexander Volkov fight. So we're not completely certain in terms of what kind of Fabrizio Vergadum we're going to get and how he reacts to being off for such an extended period of time. And couple that in with the fact that this is, his, you know, he's 42 years old. Um, and he's going up against a guy that seems a, a little durable and Alexi Olenek, who could actually, who could kind of hold his own on the ground if it actually gets to that point. Um, you know, Verdum has definitely made strides in his striking uh, since mainly being a jiu-jitsu fighter in the earlier parts of his career. But now, uh, you know, under the tutelage of Kings MMA and Rafael Cordero, he managed to round out his striking game, which actually got him to, you know, a heavyweight championship. Uh, quickly lost it after that, you know, after fighting pretty stupidly against Stipe Miocic, rushing forward with his chin forward uh, or his chin straight up in the air and then getting clocked and, and paying for it that way. But he still has some interesting tidbits about him in terms of like his his striking style. You know, he loves to throw the teep, which is something very uh, useful, especially when you're trying to figure out your range and, and you know, keep the range from your opponent. Um, he doesn't throw with the most like... Uh, you know, he doesn't really turn his hip or 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 really put a lot into his shots when he's throwing his shots. It seems more so to keep the opponent busy on the feet so that eventually that he could go for a takedown and start to work his jiu-jitsu game. Um, I'm not sure what the what the the game plans here are gonna be against uh, Alexei Olenek. You know, with Olenek, um he has that that Sergio Moraes, that Haniyaya type of style where they're so confident in their jiu-jitsu that they'll just throw caution to the wind, throw everything in their punches, throw everything in their kicks, not worrying about getting taken down because they're probably going to, you know, defeat their opponent if the fight gets to the ground. You know, Alexio Linick coming into his 73rd fight, it's crazy the amount of... Uh, you know, uh, the amount of experience he's managed to accrue and then obviously beating a guy like Maurice Green last time out. And I'm not saying Maurice Green is like the second coming of like the next heavyweight, uh, you know, champion or anything like that. But beating a younger guy, a 33-year-old Maurice Green, who seemed to have started to make improvements in his career, uh, you know, that gives him a little bit of confidence. In this fight against Verdum, it's... I, I really don't know how it's going to play out. Like, is is Verdum going to try to keep this on the feet? Is Olenek going to try to keep this on the feet? Who's going to be the one to go for the takedown first? Who believes that their jiu-jitsu is better than the other? I'm going to side with Verdum being better than Olenek at this point in time, uh, but I can't confidently say that. And to have the line as wide as it is, in my opinion, it's a little bit weird. Um I'm I'm fully on board the Fabrizio Verdum train in this in this fight, but I would need closer to like a minus two fifty, minus two thirty five because you can't really count out the the 
the Hail Mary knockout or the Hail Mary punch from Olenek that could potentially rock Verdum and then, you know, go down, go to the ground and, and seek a submission. I think Verdum would be good off his back regardless uh, or even defending submissions. It's more so his durability at this point, which I'm not 100% sure about. And you can't really be sure about his durability, you know, at minus 310, um, I think it's a little wide. You know, skill for skill and, and, and where they're at, Verdum should probably blow him out of the water. But there's just too many X factors on the outside, you know, abbreviated training camps, uh, lack of training partners, not really getting a full training camp in for either guy. You don't know who it's really going to benefit or not. Um, man, I like... Uh, I'm going to pick Verdum to win here, but that line is a little bit too wide for me. If it got around minus 250-ish, minus 235, I'd probably even consider it as a lock of the night play, to be honest. But uh, I don't know if I'm actually going to do that. I'll wait out and see where the line goes. But like on the feet, Verdum should have absolutely no problem outside of a Hail Mary shot that Olenek could possibly land. That's the issue too, though. He really seems to... Um, you know, he really, there's a lot of tell when he's about to throw that big shot. And, you know, even if there's a tell, sometimes he lands it. But you got to believe that Verdum will be able to to, to endure it. Um, outside of that Volkov finish that uh, that happened the last time he was there, you know, that could be attributed a little bit more to more so to cardio. And they only have three rounds this time around. And I highly doubt it goes past the, the two-round mark. But that's where my hesitancy in terms of betting the over under here comes into play. Like, I could absolutely see it hit the ground and then both guys are just so good off with their jiu-jitsu that they kind of nullify themselves and we just kind of have like a, a back-and-forth grappling match. That's what's keeping me a little bit hesitant in terms of playing a total here. Uh, but I, I still like Verdum, man. Like, I, I believe that he's going to be the, the, the better guy on the feet outside of a one-shot KO from Olenek. I think Verdum will be able to, you know, accrue damage up there. And then hopefully uh, once Olenek starts sucking win, which we've seen him start sucking win come the second round, um, Verdum could really implement his game, land some elbows, maybe get a ground-and-pound finish. Um, but yeah, like, I... I Minus 300, is, it's it's not sitting too well with me. So I'm going to wait for that minus 250-ish if we end up getting that. I think some people will look into that uh, extended layoff issue a little bit. Uh, and I don't blame them. But uh, skill for skill, you got to go with Ver Verdum here. Uh, the line is just not, um, you know, the, the line is just not enough for me, though. The fight doesn't go to decision, I believe, is minus... Yeah, minus 250. See, that's not bad. Not that's not a bad line. I don't see it going to a decision. If it was on over under two and a half, I would absolutely take the under two and a half. But at the one and a half here, seven and a half minutes, you know, there could easily be uh two minutes of feeling each other out, a minute and a half of feeling each other out, and then a solid five to six minutes of them just going back and forth with the grappling on the ground. So not 100% sure how that, that's going to play out in terms of timing, but I still believe that we're going to see Verdum get the finish here. So I'm going to go with Verdum via second round TKO. It's just it's just such a flimsy fight. It, it seems so weird to me in terms of how this will play out and how the jiu-jitsu will actually clash if we actually get to see that. You know, I hope we don't see them go out there and try to stand with each other for 15 minutes because that's going to be... A, quite boring you know what i mean <laughs> well that, that wouldn't be very entertaining but um you got to think that verdum thinks he has uh lost time to be made up especially being offered two years he obviously wants to get back to the title um but he's gonna have to put on a bit of a dominant performance here to remind people that he's still around and he's still able to uh implement uh himself in the heavyweight division and you know luckily for him that heavyweight division is very uh it's 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 older 
So being 42 isn't the worst thing out there. Uh, so he could definitely stake a claim for himself there. But uh, he's going to have to get it past Olenek. He's going to have to do it dominantly if he wants to assert himself back into that title picture. Uh, so I am going to take him by second round TKO. Minus 300 though, pass. Anthony Showtime Pettis versus Cowboy Cerrone. This should be a fun fight. This is actually a rematch way back from 2013. I believe that was yep, January of 2013 where Anthony Pettis actually finished on Cowboy Cerrone with a beautiful body kick, followed up with punches, uh, and took the victory in that fight. Um, both guys are far removed from those days. You know, the, both guys are coming up on tough times. Uh, Cowboy Cerrone is coming off three straight losses. Uh, Anthony Pettis is coming off of two straight losses. Uh, pretty much that Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight was about to be a loss as well. Uh, but he pulls out a Superman punch in that at the end of the second round. But that looked like a Wonderboy Thompson f- uh, fight. Pretty much waiting to play out for another three rounds. Uh, but he did show some things in the, in that specific fight that uh, you know leads me to believe that there is still a good fighter in Anthony Pettis. Maybe not a good, maybe slightly above average fighter, I should say. Uh, but Cowboy Cerrone has just been you know getting beat on the last couple of fights. Uh, it's unfortunate for both fighters because both of them will to under fighters that you know apply so much pressure on them. Tony Ferguson, uh, Nate Diaz, Diego Fajera. Two out of three of those opponents have beaten both of these guys. Uh, Diego Ferreira last time around t- uh, took out Anthony Pettis via rear naked choke in that second round. But it's a weird thing with Anthony Pettis. Like, it feels like every fight you can, if things aren't really going his way, he finds an out. You know, and that's kind of shitty to say about a guy like Anthony Pettis because he's a highly talented fighter. But you know, th- th- there was a certain point in that Nate Diaz fight, specifically in that th- uh, second round where he gave up his back willingly like like and fell to the ground it i'm sure most of you know which which instance i'm talking about but uh you know diaz had him pinned up against the cage uh he had anthony's back uh and then anthony just kind of just crumpled to the ground and gave up position you know pettis did kind of come back at the end of that third round where he uh, was able to reverse position on eight diaz but he wasn't able to do much in return in terms of uh you know pulling off the victory there but anytime a fighter you know lays pressure on Anthony Pettis he finds a way to wilt uh not finds a way but he just unfortunately wilts Diego Fe had a perfect game plan right in his face right from the first bell right to you know the moment he sunk that choke but that's the way you beat Anthony Pettis with Cowboy Cerrone it's kind of the same thing too you know Tony Ferguson was very uh uh, successful with it you know Connor was successful with it Justin Gaethje was successful with it but when fighters you know, when fighters allow Cowboy Cerrone to start to dictate the pace and, and start to fight his own fight, that's when they start to get into trouble. Fighters like Alexander Hernandez and Ally Quinta. You need to establish yourself in that first two to three minutes and let Cowboy Cerrone know that you're going to, you know, you're not going to let him breathe. And I think Anthony Pettis, you know, even if he just watches his, his first fight with Cowboy, he should be able to take some pointers from that and bring that to this fight. Like, it seemed once he changed into the southpaw position in that fight and started landing those leg kicks, it started you know opening up more things for him. And I think he do he could do the same thing here. There's nothing showing uh, you know there's nothing really glimmering to me in terms of Don and Cowboy Cerrone in the last couple of fights that shows me that that type of style won't won't work. You know when you have a fighter that's in your face as much as uh, you know Anthony Pettis was in that Wonder Boy fight, you feel like you can definitely still beat Cowboy Cerrone. So you know. 
the the one thing that I was talking about that I really liked in the Stephen Thompson fight from from Wonder Boy was the or from Anthony Pettis was the fact that Anthony Pettis stayed in his face. You know, he knew that Wonder Boy was going to be a little bit funky and all over the place with the striking, and Wonder Boy was able to get off and landed a lot of good shots. But the one thing that Pettis stayed upon was the the leg kicks, uh, and just just kicks in general, whether they were to the body, to the leg, or to the head. But uh, you know, if he can do that to Cowboy Cerrone. That's a path to victory for him right there. But he needs to establish it immediately. You know, Cowboy has never really been that guy to allow to 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 dictate his own pace or 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 set this ridiculous pace on people. Once he gets comfortable, then he starts to let his uh, strikes go. But he kind of just lets the fight come to him rather than him taking the fight to his opponent. Uh, Anthony Pettis, you know, I, I feel like he can really establish himself in that first minute, uh, first half round or so. Uh, and really, really put it on Cowboy. Um, one weakness that we have seen for Anthony Pettis is his ground game. You know, his jiu-jitsu, in my opinion, is still top-notch. We still see him going for his submissions, triangles. He's still trying to be slightly offensive at times off of his back. I'm not... I, I You know, Cowboy Cerrone's jiu-jitsu is very good too, but something that he needs to implement in this fight, especially if he wants to win, is the, the clinch and the wrestling. And I think that he's going to be able to get Anthony Pettis down because Pettis just doesn't have that good of takedown defense. But if he's able to hold on, hold that top position and really ride Anthony Pettis, um, he should... You know he should be able to secure a victory for himself in that uh, in that manner as well. I don't know if he'll get there though. I don't know if I can trust Cowboy. Like this is a, a an absolute pass for me in terms of betting either side. I can't trust the mental of Donald Cowboy Cerrone or you know trust the fact that he's going to be able to get out of that first two and a half minutes without really getting hurt or anything like that. Nor can you test or 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 or, or trust uh, Anthony Pettis in terms of his his. His mentality, uh, you know, his takedown defense, uh, ability to get grinded out in that aspect. You can't trust either guy. And both guys are in very crucial moments in their careers. You know, I feel like Cowboy Cerrone needs this victory a little bit more. Um, or, or sorry, I actually think that Anthony Pettis needs this victory a little bit more due to the fact that I feel like the UFC feels like he can be expendable. You know, you don't want to get let go of Cowboy Cerrone if you're the UFC. He has such a big aura and name around him that even if he's on a four or five fight losing streak, you keep this guy around because he brings entertaining fights, he has a huge name value, and you don't want to let him go to Bellator. Anthony Pettis, on the other hand, I think it feels like I think it feels like he's a little bit more expendable. You know, they already let his brother go over there. They didn't bother matching that contract that Bellator offered him. Uh, and Anthony Pettis, you know, if he comes out of here with a third trade loss, I could definitely see him getting his walking papers. And you know, the UFC being like, okay, he doesn't really deserve this type of money that we're paying him nowadays. So stylistically, it's in my opinion, it's if Anthony Pettis can establish himself in that first two and a half to three minutes, he should be able to win this fight. If Cowboy Cerrone is able to establish his wrestling uh, and not get finished in that first two and a half minutes, this could be his fight. Well, am I willing to make a bet here? Probably not. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not certain on either side here. If you're putting a gun to my head, and like even for my best bets article, I'll probably put uh, Cowboy Cerrone as the best bet here just to 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 value. You know, I think. Um, what what are the odds right now? Let's see. Uh, minus one forty, plus one twenty for Cowboy. So, dog or pass situation pass for me but if you really want to bet this fight i think Cerrone's the way to go uh but pettis could definitely make it really really difficult in that first round so uh, i am gonna pick pettis i can't believe i'm doing it i'm picking pettis uh to win this fight but in terms of betting i'm not trusting him at that number so the best bet will be donald Cerrone in terms of value but i think that pettis is going to be able to establish that 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 
the the pace, the pressure, uh, staying in Cowboys' face, landing those uh, leg kicks. I think he's going to be able to establish that right off the bat. Uh, and we should see him probably get like a second round finish or something. But yeah, I don't trust either guy. I really don't. Anthony Pettis is probably number two most fragile guy in the UFC outside of Dominic Cruz because he seems to just break any and everything no matter when he fights. So that could potentially be uh, a thing here. So I'm not willing to pay the money on minus 140 on Anthony Pettis to find that out. I am picking him to win. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to say Anthony Pettis second round TKO. Greg Hardy versus Jorgen DeCastro. I'm very excited for this fight too because I believe... Outside of Alexander Volkov, this is going to be the first real test for Greg Hardy in terms of somebody that's not going to be intimidated going up against him. So let's start off with Greg Hardy. We know his past with the NFL. We know his whole other bullshit that he had to go through and all that. So not that he had to go through, kind of put himself through it anyway. Um, and now here he is in the UFC, a couple fights down. Um, you know, his most impressive victory, i got to say, is the Benson Soli fight. Uh, that's a fight that I actually bet the under one and a half, thinking that he's just going to come out there like a wild man, try to put Sassoli away or get put out himself. Uh, but we saw a very measured Greg Hardy there. It seems like his time over at ATT was really coming to fruition. You know, we've seen him out there just throwing the jab, throwing a couple of leg kicks, uh, keeping Sassoli on the end of his jab not allowing Sassoli to really get in there and implement any type of uh, game plan. So that was a pretty impressive performance. You know, I will, I'll give that to him. And then he takes a quick turnaround against Alexander Volkov, was, which was a win-win for him. You know, he even though he went to a decision and lost that, uh, it showed that he was able to hang in there with some of the top guys in the, in the world. But I think that with Volkov, it... You know, he's not really like a one-punch knockout type of guy or a guy that's going to put the pressure on you to really get you out of there um, as soon as possible. So, you know, I, I'm not taking too much from the fact that Greg Hardy was able to survive 15 minutes. You know, I'll give it to Greg. You know, he, considering his size and his frame, he moves very well and he probably moves the best out of any heavyweight just due to his NFL background as well. Um, but... Most of his opponents have kind of been defeated before they even got into the cage. And it's pretty evident in like the Juan Adams fight, for example. Um, guys can talk a big game before the fight, but once the fight actually takes off, uh, it's a whole different thing. And I think that the guy that he's going up against now, Jorgen Castro, will definitely give him some issues. Um you know, just going through some of the Castro's fights, you see that he, you know, punches very, very hard uh, and has very good leg kicks too. Uh, the you know the main fight that a lot of people will remember about him is obviously his Justin Taffa knockout, but his uh, his victory on the contender series over Alton Meeks was very, very impressive too. You know, the way he was moving, so agile for a guy that that has the frame that he does. And you know, I'm not trying to take any shots at his as a, at his physical. Uh, appearance or anything like that but the the guy throws heat and he you know throwing flying knees with uh no issues either um but the way he really leans on his leg kicks is what makes me like him as much as i do um you know he finished the alton meek fight i believe he was like a plus 650 underdog crazy he finishes that fight with a, a brutal calf kick and um you know you can just see the technique behind it the power behind it and it really crippled Alton Meeks in that fight you know he was on his way in that uh, Justin Tava fight as well to implement that leg kick and really get that game going before he absolutely flatlined Justin Tava and has that beautiful walk-off KO probably probably you know up there uh and a highly underrated knockout in 2019 uh but in this fight against Greg Hardy 
he's going to have to lean on that leg kick. You know, I believe if he is able to center his game game plan around the leg kicks, uh, he should have a lot of success. One thing Greg Hardy is known well for is uh, obviously his movement. But if you're able to neutralize that right off the bat, it should really give Greg Hardy some issues uh, in terms of moving around. Uh, and, you know, he might even be forced to change his stance just due to taking punishment from that lead leg. So once he changes his stance, you're talking about a guy that just picked up MMA a couple of years ago and now you're forcing him to use a secondary stance, which he's probably not that comfortable in. Um, if DeCastro is able to be successful without getting put out uh, early, he should be able to you know, put together a really good uh, game plan in terms of working that front leg, getting in uh, Greg Hardy's face, uh, and really putting it on him like nobody else has been able to in the past. So I'm super excited to see if Jorgen's going to be able to to implement that. Uh, you know, it's it's a no brainer from seeing any of his fights in the past. You got to assume that's the type of game plan you got to go in uh, with, especially when it's such a advantage for yourself. Um, if he's able to actually really you know work that leg kick and and get on the inside. He has the chance of opening up the chin of Greg Hardy as well too, which he can eventually crack in that second or third round. The under one and a half was something that I was going to be considering, especially the fact that it's at like the plus 130. Let me confirm that. Yeah, it's roughly around plus 130. I thought that would be very good for uh, a, a good bet, you know, even though the, the under one and a half in the Sisoli and Hardy fight burned me. But, um, you know, I'm not sure how long it would take for DeCastro to really implement his game plan with that leg kick and whether it would be seven and a half minutes uh, or less I'm not 100% sure but the value is definitely on him uh, I think it's very amateur of some betters out there to go out there and bet you know Greg Hardy at the minus 200 minus 250 against a guy with like Jorgen you know even though the tape is limited on him in terms of what's out there and and the the fights that you can find of his I'm very impressed, and I think it's the best that Greg Hardy has faced outside of Alexander Volkov. Um, and it's going to be a, a very tough time for people to swallow that pill once DeCastro goes out there and, de uh, you know, derails this Greg Hardy hype train. But the fact that, the, you know, at the time of this recording that the line continuously goes up, I'm just going to wait it out. You know, I might get that plus 200. If I get that plus 200, I'm hammering that shit. But I really like Jorgen DeCastro in this fight. Uh, as soon as the fight was announced, you know, I, I had a feeling I'd be betting him. And then going into the tape and finally doing my due diligence, you know, I came out even happier. You know, most of these fights on this card that I went through, I went in thinking that I'm going to bet the favorite, then I come out on the other side thinking I'm going to go with the underdog instead. But this is one of those few fights where I went in thinking I'm going to bet a guy and still came out on the under end wanting to bet him even more. So I, I like DeCastro here. Uh, I think, again really comes down to the leg kicks if he's able to implement that right off the bat uh really establish his game plan he should be able to wear out greg hardy um you know we've seen the cash he's on the cash was undefeated you know we, we we don't know the extent of it, uh what his chin is like and if he actually gets cracked uh justin taffa had a couple of good cracks on him but nothing crazy but greg hardy is definitely another level when it comes to power so I I like to I like to see what DeCastro how he reacts when he gets hit by a guy like Greg Hardy. But outside of that, if he's able to to stick in there, work the leg kicks, uh, you know, work the body, work his way up to the head, he should be able to put away Greg Hardy in that second round. Um, which is again, which is why I'm skeptical about playing the over under here. But there is a ton of value on Jorgen DeCastro straight anyway, so you might as well try to hit that. Um, Nothing official for me yet, but I'm just going to wait until this uh, to see where this line plays out, and then I'll make my decision from there. But my pick is going to be Jorgen DeCastro via second round TKO. 
Calvin Qatar versus Jeremy Stevens. This is a great fight, in my opinion. I'm very excited for this one. Uh, but the jury seems to already be out on this matchup. A lot of people seem to be on Calvin Qatar. And uh, I'm not going to lie, initially going into taping this fight, I was on Calvin Qatar as well. Um, I'm very impressed with his boxing. It's very smooth. His head movement is decent. He still does get hit at times. Um, his footwork, you know, when it is successful and when he is landing on opponents, it seems to work uh, pretty flawlessly. However, um, one thing I found pretty evident uh, in most of his fights is the fact that he doesn't seem to check leg kicks the best. So obviously, we really seen it exploited in his Hanato Moikano fight, which, you know, decent showing from him. But once the leg kicks start to pile up, uh, Moikano was able to really push pull away from uh, Qatar there and really, you know, put a stamp on that fight. Um, you know, we saw Ricardo Lamas try to attack it a little bit. Um, you know, Qatar was able to put him out. However, uh, you know, I didn't really see anything in terms of him really fixing the fact that he's not able to check his kicks. He wasn't really checking his kicks against Ricardo Lamas. He was just trying to time it and then move out of the way. Um, you know, you got to be careful about that. I think checking the kick is probably the better way to go and the easier way to stay inside the pocket while being able to still get off his own combinations. So one thing that's evident with Jeremy Stevens is when he was successful during that crazy run that he was on with Gilbert Melendez, Duho Choi, and Josh Emmett, all of those fights, you know, maybe not as much with the Josh Emmett fight, but the Choi and Melendez fight, he was really staying on the leg kicks and it allowed him to build more confidence and he was able to get better shots off, uh, you know, later on in that fight, especially the Gilbert Melendez fight. That's probably his best performance to date. But you also got to put a little bit into the fact that he established his leg kicks nice and early. That allowed him to paint a beautiful picture in the rounds two and three, where, you know, Melendez was pretty much defenseless. Whenever you force a fighter to go into his opposite position or his opposite stance, uh, they're at a they're at their secondary level in terms of striking defense. So it's harder for them to reach shots coming from that stance, at least in my opinion. And it's harder for them for uh, to obviously get their uh, combinations off as well too. So if Jeremy Stevens is able to implement his leg kicks nice and early, he should be able to force Calvin Qatar into a different... I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to get raped on the fact that uh, I keep saying Qatar. I think it's Cater if I'm not mistaken. And somebody actually called me out on it on one of my last videos. And if you're watching again, I apologize, my bad, but... Cater, Calvin Cater. I don't know why the, it's so easy to fucking say Cater. Why do I keep saying Qatar? Anyway, uh, yeah, if Jeremy is able to force Cater to, uh, you know, switch to his orthodox position, we'll see kind of something uh, similar to the the Moicano fight when uh, Cater was having trouble in that fight. So, uh, you know, he tried to implement it with Jose Aldo, uh, had a little bit of success in that the first half of that first round, and then Jose Aldo comes and crumples him with the beautiful uh, body punch. I would love to see how that fight would have played out if it went into rounds two and three as well. Uh, Jeremy Stevens, phenomenal cardio, so we know he's able to to really put it on guys. And you really see it in the Zabit Magomed-Sharapov fight and the Yair Rodriguez fights where he's not able to implement his leg kicks or or build up his confidence because those two fighters are you know they move so much it's it's hard to really get that those kicks going and then when they're throwing such wacky shit at you as well it's really hard for Jeremy Stevens to get you know set and you know start establishing those leg kicks but we did see his cardio come to fruition in those fights you know he had a strong third round in both of those fights uh and you know was really close to getting that finish against Jair Rodriguez as well too um I think cardio-wise, Calvin is going to be fine. 
Uh, but it's going to come down to if Jeremy Stevens is able to really establish those leg kicks nice and early. If you guys have been watching my channel for a while now, you know how much I really rate fighters that that use leg kicks as much as they do. And I thought Jeremy was going to be able to establish it against J.I. Year uh, in that fight, which is why I bet Jeremy in that fight. Um, but this fight, I think it's a little bit easier for uh, Jeremy to establish those uh, leg kicks because Calvin is just so heavy on that front leg whenever he's establishing his, establishing his boxing position. And... You know, I believe uh, Cater has the better hands here. Um, I believe Jeremy has the heavier power. I think Jeremy has the durability as well, too. So he's obviously going to eat some shots from Cater here. And I think he's going to be able to eat them, um, you know, outside of a, a liver punch or something like uh, Aldo was able to land. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Jeremy will be able to eat anything that Cater uh, presents. So I could see a, a, a way where Cater wins this fight strictly off of volume. And if he's able to, you know, deal with the light kicks and still, you know, go uh, 10 minutes of outstriking Jeremy and surviving the third round. Or if Jeremy is really able to establish that leg kick nice and early, he should be able to overwhelm Kevin. And he could probably put him out too. Like he has a, a, a really, really hard punch. He's, he's a very powerful striker. Um, so I think that that's going to be very uh, evident in this fight, especially if Jeremy establishes those leg kicks. Um, yeah, like I said, going into this fight, I was thinking that I was going to make uh, Calvin Cater my lock of the night play for this. But I'm kind of coming out on the other side thinking I'm just probably going to pass. Like, I'm not 100% confident that Jeremy Stevens is going to be able to establish that that leg kick like like I keep leaning on. Um and, and uh, you know, Calvin could easily, you know, land significant shots whenever Jeremy's trying to come in with those leg kicks. And it would really make Jeremy shy away from throwing those leg kicks. But, man, Cal it, Calvin's jab is just a thing of beauty. Uh, but we've seen Jeremy in the past before. You know, I think he's up there in top three in terms of the most losses in the UFC. But you got to give it up to him for, you know, taking those losses and then coming right back and be able to assert himself right in the top 15, top 10 of, of the featherweight. And previously the lightweight division i'm not counting out jeremy stevens here so i'm actually going to pick him to win i'm going to i'm going to be confident in the fact that he establishes that leg kick especially with a guy who hasn't really shown that he's tweaking that aspect of his game maybe working more with rob font than he like he is right now will help him establish that but you know when you look at the tape you see you know jeremy has that ingredient of that leg kick and that x factor to make this fight very interesting so i'm not laying the money down on calvin cater especially at the juiced odds at minus 235 that he's currently at um jeremy stevens you know plus 205 on pinnacle right now which isn't too bad of a price uh but i'm going to see where the line goes if you know the money continues to come in on cater uh it's going to be hard to pass up jeremy stevens at like plus 250 if it ever gets there so my picks are going to be Jeremy Stevens by decision. Um, wouldn't be surprised by a late finish, uh, but I think this is a solid underdog play here. Uh, and I know the masses are on Cater, and I know I'm probably going to get reamed for this pick, but don't give a shit. That's why you guys come to my channel and see what I'm predicting, because I, you know, there are some underdogs that I call, and and uh, this is something that I definitely see uh, as a plausible result is a underdog upset here for Jeremy Stevens. Once again, Jeremy Stevens by decision. It would not be. Um, surprised if we see him get a late finished either. So, going with the underdog here. Francis Ngannou versus Jerzinho Rosenstrike. 
this is an interesting matchup between two strikers, one with a little bit more uh, experience in the UFC, another that's kind of just burst onto the scene, uh, especially with his last win over Alistair Overeem. Uh, so let's start off with Jairzinho Rosenstrike. Actually, the, the odds are minus 270 for Nganu, plus 230 for Francis, or sorry, for uh, Jairzinho Rosenstrike. So uh, the line is a little bit wide considering what we've seen on tape, or at least what I've seen on tape. So let's start off with Jairzinho Rosenstrike. It's hard to make a, a, a huge, um, you know, assessment on this guy other than the fact that he, you know, he hits very hard. He's a pretty good kickboxer. Um, you know, he did, he did show some developments in terms of his ground game, uh, you know, especially in that Alistair Overeem fight. When he fought Junior Albini, that was a fight where he got taken down, he got mounted, it seemed like he was a, a fish out of water. Uh, but in the Alistair Overeem fight, it seemed like even though he got taken down in that first round, he was able to really tie up Overeem and really uh, downplay the amount of damage that Overeem was able to to output uh, from the top position. You know, he eventually bucked and was able to get his get himself back to his feet. Uh, so it shows that he kind of worked on his ground game in terms of defending and getting back to his feet. His main bread and butter, though, it's his striking. And I feel like he has a wider arsenal of attacks than uh, a Francis Ngannou. Uh, but he may not, you know, he, he punches very heavily as well, too. That's that's something in his back pocket. But I think that, you know, nobody will ever be able to come around uh, or come close to the um, striking uh, power of a Francis Ngannou. With Francis Ngannou, you're talking about a guy that, you know, he's mainly a two-punch guy. Like I'm talking about, you know, he likes to throw the jab and then come over with a winging right hook. Um, you know, if it's not that, it's like a, it's a left pot to, to get you to flinch one way and then come up with the uppercut. So it's like jab, hook, uppercut. That's pretty much all he has. You don't really see more than three punches in a row from him because he's always trying to kill you with that second shot. I'm not sure if that's going to work here against Jairzinho Rosenstrike. And at minus 270, I think that's far too wide uh, against a guy who has, you know, more... Uh, you know, more experience on the feet, uh, has been striking for a longer period of time, uh, and has over, you know, 80 to 90 uh, kickboxing fights as well. You got to bring more than just power. You know, there's always that chance that as soon as Francis Ngannou touches your chin that you could go to sleep. But when you come with such um, a rudimentary style in terms of just, you know, relying on your striking and your power, uh, specifically your power, it's only going to take you so far. And I think the wide is uh, the, the line is way too wide. It's way too criminal. Plus 230 for Jizen strike in this position is a little bit too wide. Um, it's something that I've considered playing as an underdog. I'm not 100% yet, uh, 100% certain yet, but it's hard to play Francis Ngannou because there's so many unknowns. Like, you know, when we saw him go that, those five rounds with Stipe Miocic, when he wasn't able to, you know, knock him out in those first three minutes, or even that first round, you saw a very deflated Ngannou and then, you know, the two, three, four, and five rounds. And, uh, you know, obviously this is only a three-round fight, so we don't have to worry about a 25-minute uh, gas tank for Francis Ngannou. But it kind of really showed um, his 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 hand when he's not able to put somebody out in the first round. It gets very sketchy. So if he's not able to put out Jairzinho Rosenstrike in that first two, three minutes or so after winging big shots, maybe Rosenstrike, that's the time for him to really go out there and... Um, and take the fight uh, away from Francis Ngannou. Um, you know, 
in terms of cardio for Rosenstrike, you know, he was able to go all five rounds with Alistair Overeem and then finish him in that last uh, last round. But that wasn't the most eventful fight either. You know, in that first round, he did get taken down. He did a good job of tying up Overeem. Didn't eat too many big shots. You know, there were a couple good elbows that Overeem landed. But it wasn't that eventful of a fight. There was a lot of clinching. Uh, there was a lot of kind of staring at each other. It wasn't the most uh, eventful uh, fight, like I said. So I'm not taking too much stock out of that fight in terms of his cardio. Um, I don't think cardio is going to be an issue here in terms of either guy. I'm not sure whether this is a, a possible fight with, um, you know, a possible fight similar to Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis, where they're just going to stare at each other and they respect their power too much. Um, I think we see a Francis Ngannou get some sort of like flashbacks and just like says, fuck it and goes balls to the wall and tries to knock out Jairzinho. And then that, you know, chance we can see Jairzinho go in there and get a, a finish in terms of a counter strike. So, I wouldn't bet Francis Ngannou here, especially at minus 270. Minus 200 maybe, minus 185 maybe, but minus 270 is a little bit absurd if I'm not being like, that. like I probably wouldn't even put him in a, a Hail Mary parlay. Anybody betting Francis Ngannou in this spot is expecting him to hit that knockout punch because there's nothing that you can find from tape that will tell you he has anything other than that knockout punch. So if he's not able to land it, I'm not willing to, you know, place minus 270 on a guy whose only path to victory is literally that. If we see Francis Ngannou go out there and try to wrestle a motherfucker, that's a different type of Francis. And I think that's something he could benefit from if he has, you know, really worked on that. If he's really working on taking guys down and then implementing his power from there, it would be much more uh, reliable than just, you know, hoping that he lands on the feet uh, and then knocks somebody out like that. I'm not willing to to take the plunge on on Francis in that in that case. Um, you know, put him up against another uh, a striker who, you know, who isn't as uh, I'd say well rounded on the feet as Jairzinho, and maybe I would take Francis. But uh, here, way too steep of a price. Jairzinho seems to have a chin on him. Hasn't been knocked out in the UFC. Has eaten has eaten some big shots from Alistair Overeem in the past too. But we know Francis Ngannou is a is another level when it comes to that. So. Um, you know, if Rosenstrike can handle the power of Nganu, this is his fight. Um, and I'm actually going to take Rosenstrike by, uh, I'm going to pick him to win. I'm, I'm going to make a pick and I'm going to go with Jairzinho Rosenstrike here. Like I told you guys, there's a lot of underdogs on this card that are very live. You just got to be very meticulous in terms of which ones you bet on. So I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to be betting on Rosenstrike at this point in time, but I think he is very, very live as an underdog here in a fight that should mainly be contested on the feet. If he's able to, you know, evade all of uh, the, the the power shots of Francis Ngannou, he should go out there and either, you know, finish Ngannou a little bit later uh, or take away a decision victory here so i'm going to take rosenstrike by second round tko uh but man francis has has a little bit of work to do to be more well-rounded mma fighter uh and not just rely on that power so rosenstrike second round tko dominic cruz versus henry suhudo for the bantamweight title I'm excited for this matchup. I'm excited for pretty much every matchup on the on this card, uh, probably with the exception of Ryan Spann and Sam Alvey. But outside of that, this this fight is very very intriguing. So we got Dominic Cruz returning since his loss to uh, for the first time since his loss since UFC 207 when he lost to Cody Garbrandt. That was his second loss in his career. Obviously, his first one was to Uriah Faber, and he was able to go 2-0 against uh, Faber in the next two fights after that. Uh, but Cody Garbrandt showed a great game plan from uh, against Dominic Cruz. It seemed more so of a, he's going to 
you know, Mixon his footwork, his head movement, which was great, looked very exceptional, but also trade punches whenever Dominic Cruz is coming on the inside. And normally Cruz does a good job of getting out of the way of big punches, but it seemed like Cody Garbrandt really had his number that night. You know, he was he was able to kind of anticipate which way Dominic Cruz is going to move, and then he wasn't afraid to eat one or two of Dominic Cruz's shots to land at least one of, you know, a major one of his own. He was able to drop uh, Dominic Cruz a couple times in that fight. And, you know, it 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 seems like a simple game plan in terms of standing there and waiting for Dominic Cruz to be able to, you know, come in and then and then you throw something after one of his shots. But he's always been able to get away with, the, with most of his opponents. Cody Garbrandt, on the other hand, was a different case. And I think it's the first time he really fought somebody like that. You know, TJ Dillashaw is a different style, uh, you know, kind of mimicking Dominic Cruz's style, but Cruz was able to get the split decision there. But in the Cody Garbrandt fight specifically, you know, it it was very evident that Dominic Cruz was uh, a hittable fighter, you know, maybe just to Cody Garbrandt. Uh, The issue here with Henry Cejudo, though, is he's going to have a little bit of a size advantage on him. So Cruz is standing at 5'8 with a 68-inch reach advantage. And then we got Henry Cejudo at 5'4 with a 67.5-inch reach advantage. um, so only you know half an inch uh, reach advantage for Dominic Cruz there, but a four inch height advantage, which I believe will come in play here in terms of him being able to land shots and then getting out without getting hit. You know Henry Cejudo uh, doesn't really have the best entries when it comes into uh, you know to to striking. Obviously his wrestling entries are next level, and he's getting better at mixing his striking in to to get his takedowns. But you know he normally comes in with a with a naked power shot, which won't really work against Dominic Cruz here. Um, you know, just thinking back to his Marlon Moraes fight, uh, he was he was pretty much getting lit up in that first round. And then in the second round, it seemed like he said, fuck it. And then he was going to be able to go forward and just start throwing shots. You know, if he's able to, if he's trying to do that against a guy like Dominic Cruz, I don't think it's going to work out very well for him. That's kind of just playing into Dominic Cruz's hand. He wants you to come forward. He wants you to make mistakes. And then he's going to capitalize with it. You know, he's not the biggest knockout puncher, Dominic Cruz, I mean. Uh, so, you know, Henry Suhudo may, may just say fuck it and he'll probably just do the same thing that he did with Marlon Moraes and just try to land a big shot. You know, there's a couple external factors here that are coming into play that might make things interesting. You know, Cruz obviously coming off uh, nearly a, a two, two, yeah, two and a half year layoff and then Henry Suhudo coming off a pretty bad shoulder surgery as well too. A lot of people will notice if you start looking at the countdown videos or any, you know, training video of him after the Marlon Moraes fight, uh, he has a very noticeable scar on his shoulder. So you you got to wonder what his recovery has been like f- from that. Uh, he fought Marais back in June of last year, so it's coming up close to a year since he fought. Uh, so who knows how well his recovery has gone and if he's able to come back as the same fighter. Dominic Cruz, on the other hand, injuries has pretty much just been his career from the get-go. So it doesn't really matter in terms of, uh, you know, what he's going to look like. Uh, you know, it is, is it, is it, ugh. I don't know why I can't get my words out here. Uh, It is a little bit of a concern uh, in terms of Dominic Cruz's shape coming back from this type of layoff, especially since against a high-level fighter like Henry Cejudo. But I think based on what we've seen, he should be able to footwork his way to a victory here. Um, Outside of, you know, looking completely rusty and not like a Dominic Cruz that we know that we've ever seen before, uh, Henry Cejudo should be able to actually land some big shots. Um... But I'm not sure if he'll land clean enough to actually put Cruz out, which I believe would be Henry Cejudo's only path to victory here. Obviously, he could go out there and just, you know, 
he it's hard for me to see him be as successful as Cody Garbrandt was you know um Suhudo obviously with a wrestling background but since he burst onto the UFC scene dating way back to his Dustin Kimura fight you know he didn't really lean on his grappling as much uh, back then it seemed like he was just trying to get his wrinkles or just 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 add more wrinkles to his game in terms of his striking specifically what he wanted to show people that he's just not a wrestler and it worked out pretty well for him you know he dropped numerous opponents on his way to winning the title against Demetrius Johnson and then obviously putting away TJ Dillashaw uh in his uh while well, he was actually yeah that was his first title defense and then going up to uh 135 and putting away Marlon Moraes uh in the third round in their fight it's it's such a tough fight to pick uh which is why I'm a little bit kind of mystified by the odds here it should be slightly closer I think a lot of people are counting Cruz out strictly due to the fact that uh one they may not know him Let's be honest, there's a lot of newer bettors out there, not to mention all the new betting uh, heads that we'll get for MMA due to the fact that there's no sports going on. Uh, and two, uh, you know, he just did not look the like the Dominic Cruz that we knew in that Cody Garbrandt fight. And a lot of people might be putting a little bit of stock in that, saying that Cruz is probably on the, the decline. Um, you know, one thing to note from Dominic Cruz in that 2016 uh, campaign for him he beat TJ Dillashaw in January. He defended the title against Uriah Faber in June. Um, and then he lost uh, the belt in December. So he fought three times in one year off of uh, after coming off a of, uh, close to two and a half, three year layoff as well before he beat uh, TJ Dillashaw for the title. So I'm not sure how much uh, ring rust is really going to affect Dominic Cruz. I don't think it will. Um, but Henry Suhudo is a very tough out. He's going to have to make sure he is on his game, uh, using his footwork as best as possible. You know, we've seen in the Uriah Faber fight where he actually went for takedowns. Uh, I don't think, obviously, I, I highly doubt that's what he's going to be looking to do here because he doesn't want to be totally in with a guy like Henry Suhudo and, you know, pretty much nullifying his 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 height advantage. Or, you know, it's 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 so weird to 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 really base, you know, uh, an advantage in terms of length based off of reach uh, but the height comes in play more so in my opinion uh, and that's where I think that Dominic Cruz um, is going to be it's going to be helpful for him the one thing he has to worry about Suhudo as well is uh, Suhudo's speed Suhudo is could possibly have the speed advantage in this fight and I believe he has the power advantage as well too uh, and obviously the wrestling advantage so that's something that Cruz is going to have to worry about uh, initially you know, he's uh, the odds currently minus 225 Suhudo plus 185 Cruz. I was thinking of pulling the trigger on Dominic Cruz at plus 200 because I think there's a, a ton of value there. Uh, I think he wins. I'm going to be picking Dominic Cruz to win. I think he wins a decision, but I I don't see the need to uh, take the shot on Cruz personally myself. If you if you are forcing yourself to take this uh, to take a bet on this fight, I, you have to go with Dominic Cruz strictly due to uh, value and obviously like his fighting style as well. But there are so many other uh, viable dogs that you know aren't coming off two and a half year layoff, aren't fighting a a, a killer in Henry Cejudo, uh, who are able to you know who produce just as much value. If not more uh, than what Dominic Cruz brings to the table, but man, this this is I'm I'm stylistically I'm kind of more intrigued by this fight than I am the main event that I'm going to be speaking about very shortly. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I still got to lean the underdog here. I still think that Dominic Cruz will will see like a, a retro Dominic Cruz here, uh, even though he's coming off such a lengthy layoff. He's one of the more intelligent fighters in the game as well, too. So you got to think he's not coming into this fight just half-assed or you know uh, 
like a, a, a severe injury that should uh, compromise him from being able to show his full capabilities. And this is a great matchup for him to come back to, especially being so uh, big compared to his opponent. Uh, so yeah, I, I like Dominic Cruz here. I think we could see him full work his way to victory. Um, you know, the, the question marks of Suhudo coming back from his injury should should be definitely up there. Um, the size advantage, uh, the experience of Cruz. Obviously, Suhudo's been a lot more active than Cruz has in the last four or five years. Uh, but there have been few to solve the puzzle of Dominic Cruz. And I just don't think that Henry Suhudo has the chops on the feet uh, to be as successful as Cody Garbrandt was. So... Um, you know, Suhudo still has a little bit of work to do on his striking. Uh, you know, obviously, he put away Marlon Moraes and TJ Dillashaw. The Dillashaw one is still a little bit weird. Um, but the, the, the Marlon Moraes one was more so Marlon Moraes gassing out. And I highly doubt that we'll see Dominic Cruz gassing out here. So it's going to come down to Suhudo uh, kind of planting his feet and, and, and just waiting for Cruz to come in and try to land a big shot there. Otherwise, I don't really see him, you know, being the one initiating the striking exchange that allows him to catch the knockout of Dominic Cruz. So I'm picking Dominic Cruz to win by decision. Uh the bet would be Dominic Cruz if he can get him at plus 200. I expect the, the line to get a little bit better as the as the week goes on. We get more casual betters who have seen more of Henry Cejudo, who have seen Triple C, who have seen the King of Cringe. Uh, and they're going to, you know, it, it's weird how much persona and media actually sway people into betting. You know, perfect example, Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. Can't believe we got minus 300 on Floyd, May Floyd Mayweather there. But uh, yeah, it, it can definitely be a factor for some people. But not for wise guys. <laughs> Not for people that are actually looking at tape and seeing what uh, threats either guy possesses. So, once again, I'm going with Dominic Cruz to win by decision. And uh, he, you know, becomes bantamweight champion once again. Hopefully he doesn't stay injured and he can actually defend his belt a couple times here. Uh, but yeah, Cruz by decision. Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje, the main event. I'm super excited for this fight. Strictly due to the entertainment value that we're about to get from it, you know, hierarchy-wise and, and just for the order of things, um, doesn't seem like this f should have been the fight. You know, Ferguson probably should have sat out and waited for the, the opportunity to, to fight Khabib. Uh, but I'm assuming, you know, the man's got to get paid. The fact that they put the interim lightweight title on the uh, line once again uh, made it a little bit more enticing for him to get back into the cage, especially against a guy like Justin Gaethje, who's going to be very, very difficult of an opponent to put away. So minus 185 is what the line currently is on Tony Ferguson, plus 160 on Justin Gaethje. Um, Tony Ferguson on a crazy run right now. 12 fights in a row where he's gotten a victory. Um, you know, most of them by stoppage. Uh, the only decision that I can remember really is the Rafael Dos Anjos fight, uh, which was his fourth last fight, which is a little bit of a trip out just due to the fact that he's fought three times in the last three years. So Kevin Lee, Anthony Pettis, and then Donald Cerrone. Obviously, he's been scheduled to fight Khabib a couple of times in between there. And then obviously, he's supposed to fight him again uh, just now. Unfortunately, it's a worldwide pandemic that has taken us away from that. But Getting into the actual stylistic, uh, you know, there there isn't really a, a uh, it's not the, the easiest way to break down Tony Ferguson. Like, anytime he goes out into cage, you, you kind of, you know what you're going to expect in terms of awkwardness and, and just crazy, you know, spinning back shit and whatever the hell it is. Um, you know what to expect with Tony Ferguson, but you just don't know how and in what type of rhythm he's going to be throwing it at you. You know, he likes to throw his spinning uh, back elbow a lot. Um, likes to throw kicks a lot, likes to throw cartwheel kicks every now and then too. Um, 
you know, his submission game is top notch. You know, ridiculous tent, uh, planet jujitsu, a black belt there. Um, you know, he can pretty much catch a darts from anywhere. So I think uh, a good game plan for him here would try to be to to tire Justin Gaethje out a little bit, uh, kind of force a shot out of him, grab a darts choke, uh, and then go from there. But I'm not sure if we'll really see a, a wrestling heavy approach from Justin Gaethje. Nor is that his. Nor is that really Justin Gaethje's. Um, What's the word that I'm looking for? It's not his reflex or it's not a, a force of nature or like, a, sorry, a, a force of habit in terms of him going to rest in kind of like a Ben Askren mode or something like that. But with Justin Gaethje, the guy just likes to throw bombs. You know, his main thing is establishing his leg kicks and then working his hands out from there. Uh, you know, that's in Barboza fight is a perfect example of that going leg kick for leg kick against probably, you know, before Justin Gaethje, the leg kick master in, um, in, in Edson Barboza. So, it, it's it's funny that the last two out of his three finishes and wins have come up have come up against the cage when his opponents are trying to get away and then he just throws that looping right hook catches them on the exit and then down they go James Vick same thing uh, and then the Donald Cerrone fight he was making he was making um, reads pretty much that entire fight anytime he threw something uh, Donald Cerrone would always duck straight down and it was evident that Justin Gaethje was you know eventually lining up a shot that would eventually put him away. Um, it's unfortunate that Cerrone had to eat a couple shots after that, uh, but Justin Gaethje was really on him. And, you know, even himself, he tried holding himself back from finishing Donald Cerrone. But um, in this fight going up against Tony Ferguson, it's going to be evident he's going to be going for that leg kick. But I think that Ferguson is going to have something in store for him too. I don't expect him to stand there and just, you know, eat all these leg shots. I'm expecting him to throw stuff back in return. I'm just not sure if it's going to be effective, though. Tony Ferguson is not really known as like a one-punch knockout guy. And Justin Gaethje, you know, especially from his fight with Dustin Poirier, one thing you can really recall from him is just like, all right, I'm just going to fucking, you know, uh, throw a leg kick and then just shell up, literally shell up uh, and just try to like, you know, uh, absorb whatever shots are coming his way. I think he's going to go with the same game plan with the Tony Ferguson here too, where he's going to like launch his light kicks, try to cover up, and then maybe tr try to catch uh, Ferguson on a, on a counter or something. That's always been Ferguson's Achilles heel. Even though he's on a 12-fight winning streak, he is very hittable. He's been rocked and dropped numerous times in his fights. And I think that Justin Gaethje has the power to do the same thing. It's tough for me to see an instance where Tony Ferguson actually, you know, wears out uh Justin Gaethje quick enough uh you know within the first 10 minutes or so and catch a sub in that way but Justin Gaethje has about 15 to 18 and a half minutes is kind of what he's throwing himself at uh in terms of putting away Tony Ferguson I think he has the power to do it and at the current line minus 185 is a little bit too steep for Tony Ferguson at least for me uh plus 160 is a great line for Justin Gaethje um you know, you got to think the dog is live here. But Tony Ferguson always finds a way to come out of the of, of the other end and win. Um, I could definitely see him continuously moving forward, wilting Justin Gaethje, landing elbows and really hurting him that way. Um, but I'm having a very tough time picking this fight, which is why the line should be a little bit closer to even, at least in my opinion. If the line was a little bit closer to even, I think I would be betting Tony Ferguson here. I think he has a really good shot to overwhelm Justin Gaethje with wild and crazy shit that Justin Gaethje is just going to continuously try to, you know, cover up and shell up, where which opens the body up for Tony Ferguson, which he, you know, he loves to aim for the body as well too. He has great shots to the body, whether it's a spinning back kick or just ripping body shots. Um, but man, it's such a tough fight in terms of 
who truly should come out as the winner based on the skill set that we've seen for both guys. You know, Justin Gaethje has taken a little bit more of a, a calculated approach in his last couple of fights, uh, so that should pay dividends for him here, especially against Ferguson. But it's so hard to be conventional and and be you know calculated against a guy who's so uncalculated. Or you know, I guess that's kind of an insult to Tony Ferguson. I don't mean it like that, but I mean as like um. Uh, just being so wacky unorthodox like Tony Ferguson it's hard to be calculated against a guy like that because you never really know what's coming at you you know the endless gas tank for Tony Ferguson is obviously advantage for him as well too so I could definitely see if this fight gets into the later third rounds fourth fifth rounds he could definitely run away with it we've seen Justin Gaethje kind of gas in the past even against Dustin Poirier for example he beat the shit out of uh, Dustin Poirier's legs. And, you know, any fighter who had a little bit more of a gas tank than Justin Gaethje probably would have been able to take Justin or to take Dustin out and, and get the victory there. But his gas tank really started to fail him. And Dustin Poirier was really able to, to capitalize on that. Eddie Alvarez was another one that was able to capitalize on the gas tank issues of Justin Gaethje. But that's you're still getting a solid two and a half, three rounds out of Justin Gaethje. A lot of power, a lot of leg kicks. Could definitely cripple Tony Ferguson in those times. And, you know, Tony Ferguson is, I hate to say it, but he's a little bit brittle too. Like he, he's had a lot of injuries in the past and he's had a lot of issues in the past too. So um, you, you got to be careful in that aspect too. Personally, the only bet I would consider is the under two and a half here, which I believe is minus 125. Let me confirm that number. Minus 130-ish now. But even that, I just want to stay away from betting this fight. Like I, I want to just sit back and 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 enjoy this fight as an entertainment because it's it's probably the greatest stylistic fight that's ever been put together in terms of two guys that are going gonna go in there and try to put on a show. And uh, you know, Ferguson obviously wants to come out with the victory here. A lot of people hope that he comes out with the victory here so that we can eventually still get the Khabib fight. But um, yeah, I, I'm not gonna bet this fight. Um, the only way I think I would find myself pulling pulling the trigger here is if Tony Ferguson was like the underdog plus one ten plus one fifteen or something like that. But I, I'm just not. I can't do it. And I, I can't pull the trigger at minus one eighty five on Tony Ferguson. The value is definitely on uh, Justin Gaethje here at plus one sixty. But I'm still going to pick Tony Ferguson to win. I think that he wears out Justin Gaethje. Uh, gets a later round finish, maybe third or fourth round finish. Um, overwhelms him body shots and then eventually sets up some sort of choke or something like that but uh it would be intriguing to see if justin tries to go to his takedowns early and often and even then i think it's going to be very troublesome for him to stay effective against tony ferguson uh who is very good off of his back has brilliant jiu-jitsu as i've said before so i'm going to be going with tony ferguson to take this victory um line is just way too wide for me to to be confident in a tony ferguson bet here so i'm just going to sit back you know not even worry about having any stake in this fight uh, and then in just ju- just enjoying it from an entertainment value. But if you're forcing yourself to make a bet here, plus 160 on Justin, Justin Gaethje is a good line. Uh, under two and a half, you know, that might actually be the bet that I'm uh, going to be, you know, touting the most in terms of like saying okay this is the one that you should you guys should be looking for especially if you don't want to choose a side uh but there's a very good possibility as well that it could go over two and a half rounds as these guys just pitter patter each other exchange knockdowns uh and then eventually you know Gaethje's gasting starts to uh you know dwindle and we see Tony Ferguson pull away so I'm gonna go with Tony Ferguson by fourth round submission uh yeah and 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 I'm gonna be happy because 
especially if I'm correct in this prediction, because then we'll eventually get Khabib versus Tony later this year or early next year. That's it. All right, those were the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed them. Uh, I thought this format was really great, as I said at the top of the show. Um, make sure you guys check out the Patreon. Make sure you guys check out the Twitter, MMALOTN. Make sure you guys check out the website, www.mmalotn.ca. Um, hit me up at any time. I'm always available to talk to you guys, whether you guys have uh, comments about the fights, whatever it is, I got you guys. Uh, leave a comment below. Subscribe as well. I'm trying to hit that 1,000 mark before the end of the summer. Getting damn near close. I hope a brother out if you haven't already subscribed. And uh, yeah, good luck this weekend. And I will actually be releasing my next episode on Sunday, the day after um, UFC 249 so that uh, we can break down the Wednesday card that's going to be coming up we got fights after fights after fights after fights so I'm going to be uh, trying to crank out these 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 breakdowns and especially like I said off the top uh, individual breakdowns for the Wednesday card are going to start dropping on the Patreon either today or the next or, or tomorrow so make sure you guys keep an eye out for that if you guys haven't already signed up for the Patreon all right I'm gonna shut the fuck up appreciate you guys uh, checking out the episode and we'll see you on Sunday good luck with your bets.